0: Now we're going to read from God's Word. We're taking a little bit of a detour from our series through Ephesians. This morning I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and I'll start at verse 22. While you're turning there, uh, I just want to welcome all those who are here with us. If you're here and, and you have children, I want you to know that you're welcome here. We, we welcome the presence of children here in our worship. The, the, the Lord Jesus Himself said that out of the mouth of infants, God has ordained praise. So you're you're welcome here with the little ones as well. Um, part of that challenge, though, I I was a parent of little ones for many years, um, many children, uh, and so I know what it's like to have to try to just. Train up your children to be able to be part uh, a constructive part of the the worship gathering So I just want to encourage you parents who are doing that keep up the good work We support you if your child just can't make it they're They're making noises or whatever You've got a lot of options here. We uh, we have the the room behind the glass with audio and video We've got that out there. We have a nursery uh, a Feel free to take care of it. There is, It's not a failure. It's There's no shame if you need to take your kids out. Uh, you're actually just doing good training. So be encouraged with that. Um, one thing that I have always found helpful to keep in mind is we, we have the blessing of having people who are born here and people who are in their elder years here. And we all want to accommodate one another. One of the challenges as people get older um, is hearing starts to diminish and so some people have hearing assistance and you've probably heard this but one of the, the strange frustrating things about having hearing assistance is that it amplifies everything. It amplifies voices so you can hear them better but it will amplify the rustling. It will amplify child noise. So That's just something to keep in mind as we all try to, to lovingly bear with one another and support one another as we uh, do the the worship and the work together. Okay, Acts 2, I'm going to read verses 22 through 24 and then skip to 32 through 47. Acts 2, starting at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him and in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. then jumping to verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we all are witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let Every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, In our service this morning, we are participating in a number of joyful and delightful things. And so I'm interrupting our series in Ephesians to look at this very relevant passage in the book of Acts. And this, this passage, it's just it's part of a sermon that was delivered by the Apostle Peter. He delivered this sermon very near to the official start of the first recorded Christian congregation if we can call it that and and at the start of this sermon of Peters at the beginning he's speaking to a group who are largely not Christians and at the end of the sermon a large number of the listeners become Christians and they become not just Christians they become a community of Christians and this morning's service we, we've got all kinds of things happening and we have we have people who are who are transferring in to this congregation we have people who are joining a congregation for the first time. We've got people who've been born into the community and and they're being recognized. And then we have people who are receiving the water of baptism. And and so this passage holds great relevance for all of us today. And we see three things that I'm going to bring out. We, We can't cover everything. I'm just going to bring out three things from this passage. First of all, we see a terrible injustice, a terrible injustice And then secondly, we see unexpected generosity, unexpected generosity. And then thirdly, we see a generous and a joyful community. So a terrible injustice, unexpected generosity, and a generous and joyful community. Now, let's look at a terrible injustice. And and if you're here and, and you're someone who's exploring Christianity, we are very glad that you're here. And, and you're probably processing all kinds of things. You're processing a variety of things that you've, you've read, that you've listened to. People might even bring up things and encourage you to, to check them out. Here's one key facet that you should know as you look into Christianity. At the very center of Christianity, there's a great act of injustice. Injustice. The, the religions of the world, they, they've got... At their centers, they've, they've got maybe sacred texts, sacred books at the center, or, or they might have a central teacher. But for Christianity, there is a terrible act of injustice lying at the center of it. And, and this is summarized in, in verses 22 through 24, which, which we read. And there are two aspects of that injustice that I want to highlight this morning. First of all, this act, it was unjust. It was unjust. And then secondly, it was unthinkable and yet intentional. So first of all, it was unjust. Well, what was the unjust act? What was this act? Well, it was, if it had happened to you and you you lived to, to describe it later, you would say, this was a nightmare, complex injustice. That's what happened. It was a nightmare, it was complex, and it was unjust. You had in this You had the persecution of a good man. You had the defamation of a good man. You had perjury in the trial of an innocent man. And you had the execution of a blameless man. Now, when you talk about injustice, it it can sound like this lofty thing like some kind of malfeasance that's only experienced by people who are in these like extreme, almost fictitious uh, predicaments, uh, or in these places of power that are far removed from what any of us have ever been in or will be in. But the truth is, all of us, all of us face, at some level, we all face injustice. For instance, when when your reviewer or when your supervisor doesn't recognize your performance, or, or when, when the person above you shows favoritism for another person, or, or they show bias against you personally, that unjust assessment, that negatively affects you. And you, you've probably experienced that. If you, if you haven't, you, you will eventually. But it's not just where you work, where, where you live. There's, there's injustice in families. Even at a small level, maybe, maybe there's something that you once said about math. When you were a kid, you said something stupid about math when you were a kid, but now you're in your 40s and your family still is treating you like you're some kind of numbers incompetent idiot and that you can't get numbers because of this thing that you said that you got wrong decades ago. That's unjust also. At at the center of Christianity, this man, Jesus, received unjust treatment. Jesus, for instance, Jesus was utterly truthful In all of his speech, verse 22, God attested to it. He was utterly truthful, but people called him a liar. For instance, another way it was unjust, Jesus was a good citizen. He was actually the best citizen. But verse 23, his own people made up charges of of rebellion, and they took him to court. And, And then Jesus was an innocent man. He was innocent, but the court ordered his execution and the government crucified him in public. That was unjust. That was unjust. Uh, So secondly, we see this. This injustice, it was also unthinkable yet intentional. Unthinkable yet intentional. So here Peter is speaking. He's in Jerusalem. And that's the very place and at the very time where Jesus, just a few weeks ago, had been unjustly prosecuted and put to death. So it's the place where the... unjust treatment had happened. And listening to him there, listening to his sermon, those haters and, and those dishonest accusers are there and they're listening. And so part of what Peter is telling them is this. He says, you, you people, killed an innocent man. You're the ones who are responsible for this. Now, Injustice is bad enough. But here's why we say that this was unthinkable. Verse 23, speaking of Jesus, he says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Now, you want to look at what is happening in that one sentence, what Peter is saying there. On the one hand, Peter says, He's accusing the people listening to him. You, you took Jesus. You put him to death unjustly. But in the same sentence, in the first half, ultimately Peter says, God did it. And that is unthinkable. Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was predetermined. It was predetermined. God predetermined to do this to Jesus? Now, you know how that works with murder. If you commit murder, that will put you in prison. But premeditated murder will lock you up even longer. He's saying, God predetermined this for Jesus. That's unthinkable. God intentionally determined and sovereignly worked out so that Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God, would be a man delivered to death by the purpose of God. To say that it would be blasphemous to say that or think that about God except God says it about Himself here in His Word. Now this is something that is it's, it's worth just parking on and, and and letting it soak in. Because that mean, because if this is true, then you can consider the unfair treatment that you might today experience, whether it's in your home, whether it's where you live, and, and you can reflect on how Jesus endured severe injustice it wasn't fair it was wrong for them to treat him that way and yet this injustice it's at the center of the christian faith and if you're a christian it's it's at the center of your faith and so that means christians of all people christians have a way to deal with injustice against themselves as christians of all people we have a way to deal with injustice that we experience and and we who are Christians, also have a way, of all people, to deal with injustice when we see it committed against other people. And so if, if you're a Christian and, and when you are treated unfairly, when people unfairly mischaracterize you, people are passing you over for something you really deserve. It really has, it's, been, it's your time. Or people throwing you under the bus, you can recognize that it's wrong, that it's unjust. But because, because you know that God determines all things, you also know that God can work an unimaginable, impossible good out of injustice. And so you're treated unjust, unjustly, but you can entrust yourself to this God and, and you can await his just resolution. You know that God used the injustice of the cross, for the good of the world. And if that's true, and because that's true, God can take your own injustice, and he can do something better than you could ask or think. And That's, that's, that's just for when you're treated unjustly. What about when you see other people treated unjustly? Well, it means that you can recognize it, and, and that it should move you. And like Jesus, you want to take up the cause of those who are in need, even if it means you're going to suffer unjust harm upon your own person. Because Jesus endured injustice to deliver those who are oppressed, you're willing to endure pain to lift up the oppressed. Christians should be the effective voice speaking against injustice in personal situations, in societal situations, and that's why Christianity of all beliefs, Christianity should be speaking against racial injustice. That's why Christians should have a high concern about abortion. The unborn are the most vulnerable of all people. Now, we've looked at a terrible injustice, Jesus of Nazareth, innocent yet executed. Now let's look at this unexpected gift. This is in verses thirty through 32 through 40. So this, this act of injustice at the center of Christianity It's there, but that injustice is not the entirety of what's at the center. Because after Jesus died, on the third day, Jesus rose. There's a resurrection. Verse 24, God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Then verse 32, this Jesus, God has raised up. Of which we are all witnesses. So God determined and purposed to deliver Jesus to death. And God also, after a time, raised Jesus up. It was impossible, Peter says, it was impossible to leave him dead. And so, you, you Christian, you who are groaning under whatever heavy load is on your shoulders, the heavy hand of God on your life, take heart. Take heart that, that God who laid Christ low is also the God of the resurrection. You are one day closer to the day of your deliverance. It is coming. Now, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, the Psalms are those unsurpassed journals of, of prayers and songs of sufferings. Over and over in the Psalms, the Psalms say, I waited patiently for the Lord. And so, so this is how the resurrection applies to you. Wait for the Lord. Wait for him. Wait for him to lift you back up. Wait for him to resolve this situation of people who are trashing your reputation. Wait for him to thaw this relationship that's frozen. Wait upon the Lord. Wait on the Lord to do it. And here's where you see this unexpected gift. Jesus, who's, who's raised up from the dead, and he's returned to heaven, Jesus sends a gift. He sends a gift. The gift, it was something that was long prophesied, but they did not understand it. And so it was unexpected when it arrived. Verse 33, here's the gift. Therefore, speaking of Jesus, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear and so so here's the chain I want you to follow you have Jesus incarnation he became a human infant then you have Jesus crucifixion he died on the cross for our sins in our place and then you have Jesus resurrection he rose from the dead and then you have Jesus ascension he returned to heaven and to his throne and what is one of the first actions he takes when he ascends and he returns home What's one of the first things that you do when you come home after a long trip? Maybe you come back from a week away visiting relatives, on a vacation. What do you do? Maybe you check your mail. Maybe you sort out the packages that arrived. Maybe you unpack your bags. Maybe you call your friends. You start lining things up for the the week when you return back to classes or to work. Jesus' first act, when he returns home, he sends a gift to his friends. It says he poured out the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not the only place where this, this urgency that he has to send the Holy Spirit as a gift is mentioned. Another name for the Holy Spirit is, is the helper. The helper. So, here are some, many of the places where Jesus emphasizes how urgently he's going to send this gift to you. First thing when he gets back to heaven, John 14, 16, And I, Jesus, will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper the spirit that he may abide with you forever and then john 14:26 but the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that i sent said to you then john 16:7 jesus says nevertheless i tell you the truth it is to your advantage that i go away for if i do not go away the helper the holy spirit will not come to you but if i depart I will send him to you. John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Spirit is a high-priority gift from Jesus. This is what it's telling you. You need this gift. You need the Spirit. And Jesus is generous. He doesn't send just a sample, the way they do when you're maybe at an ice cream shop and you're wondering which of which these flavors, and they give you a tiny, tiny spoon. It's just a sample. He's generous in the quantity. He poured, Verse 33, he poured out, poured out his spirit. The language is a stream. It's a full quantity flowing out and down. Now, if you're a Christian, when, when you think of your salvation, maybe you've got a picture of salvation a mental picture of what your salvation is or what was going on with your salvation. Maybe the picture that you have is, its well my salvation, it's, it's like a courtroom. Or, or maybe the picture that you have, you envision a homecoming and, and a, an adoption and, and there's this embrace from your father to whom you're, you're reconciled. Well here's another picture. Those are all good pictures and you should have those pictures. Here's another part of the picture you should have. Salvation means that God pours out his spirit upon you. It's downward drenching. He's pouring out his spirit from heaven and it's falling down on his people. And and not only is it downward, it's also inward. The spirit of God comes into you. It pours into you. It floods you. It's also connective. Because the spirit is in you, you have this connection that you could never have except for the Spirit is in you, and so now you have a connection, and you know the Father and the Son. They live inside you. That's because of the Holy Spirit being poured out on you. And so this means you, if you are a Christian, it means you are never alone in the world. It means God is in heaven. Christ has returned to heaven until he returns, but somehow, spiritually and really, Christ has returned, and he lives in you. And really, spiritually, God has made his home in you. John 14, 17. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is saying, through the indwelling spirit that's poured out from heaven on you, the Father and the Son, they Dwell in you, they indwell you. And so John fourteen twenty three, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Don't you see what that means? It means when you feel when you feel so alone. When you feel alone, you, believer, are not alone. But you say, but I feel alone. But you're not alone. You're known. You're loved. It says, the Father will love you. And you're not alone. And in a real sense, Jesus has returned already. He's come to you. And the Spirit, the Father and the Son, they dwell in you. And sometimes, just sometimes, you get a taste of that you can almost hear them you can almost see them at work in you in your life and and sometimes you sense that they're comforting you when you need consolation are you alone are you lonely are you aching with bone weary isolation you wish you wish you had romance but it's always slipping through your fingers and and the loneliness stings or or you're married but you're unhappy and so you're alone even though you're both under the same roof and the loneliness aches the spirit dwells in you if you're a believer the spirit dwells in you if you're a believer God poured him out on you from heaven and you will know him for he dwells in you and will be in you and at times he will give you an unmistakable sense of himself in you it might be frequent it might be occasional But eventually, eventually, he gets through, he convinces you. Haven't you always wished, haven't you always wished for a friend, for a permanent friend, for an honest and trustworthy and loyal friend? Abraham, Abraham became a friend of God. Through Christ, you can become a friend of God. How? How can you become a friend of God? How can he always come to live with you and in you? Well, the text says, you need to repent, you must repent. Well, what does that mean? Repentance is a word that's basically only used in the context of Christian teaching. It's just not, it's not a word that's out there. So let me, let me give you one angle on it. Repentance, it's both an accusation and it's an admission. It's both an accusation and an admission. Verse 36, here's the accusation. Peter confronts the people for the injustice that they committed. And he says, this Jesus, you crucified. That's the accusation. He accuses them of their rejection of God. He accuses them of their rejection of God's son. He accuses them of their rejection of God's way. But in a bigger way, it means that all of your sin is confronted. Now, You might call it sin. You might call it your baggage. Whatever you want to call it. It's that that stuff. It's, It's that stuff that for the people who live with you, for the people who have had to work with you, it's that stuff where you've hurt them. And so repentance involves this accusation that you've done these things. But repentance also involves admission. Verse 37, receiving this accusation, it says, they were cut to the heart. What shall we do, they ask? And so they're admitting that they were wrong that Jesus was in the right. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a surrender. It's saying, God, you were right, and I've been wrong. I've been wrong about everything, about Jesus, about all these things that I've rationalized with all my high and lofty language, about my misbehavior. I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. And so, have you sensed the accusation of God? And have you responded with, with this heartfelt admission? Well, look at Peter's response to their admission of sin. They do repent. They, they do surrender to this. Verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. The offer is that you can be rescued, that you can have this Holy Spirit so that you'll never be alone and so that you can be rescued. And the the, the picture that he's drawing is this. You're sinking. You are sinking. Your life can't stay afloat the way it is right now, but you won't admit it. You're stubbornly resisting and rejecting the accusation that he's bringing. But if you will admit, if you will surrender and accept it, that you need to be Rescued, that you need to be saved both from yourself and from the, just the generation around you. This is the gospel offer of Jesus, the substitute who will endure the just punishment for your sin so that you can have the innocence of the only good man who ever lived in the sight of God. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? To this, get this Holy Spirit. Get this remission of sin. Well, it's simple but it is costly. It's simple enough that a child can do it and understand it, but it's costly enough that a rich person will reject it. You say this. You say, I repent. You say, I have been wrong. And you receive it. You say, I believe. I believe that Jesus, you died in my place for my many misdeeds, and because of you, I'm never going to be punished. There will be no condemnation from God because of this. Jesus died for me. And now I want to follow him. That's what you say. That's what you do. Now today we have this this special pleasure in seeing people come to be baptized. That was also part of, of this verse when they said, what should we do? He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the normal next step for someone who commits to this Jesus Christ. Verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3000 souls were added to them now baptized why why baptism baptism is the it's just it's applying water to the person who believes but why why do this it, if you're new to Christianity this could might seem a little random okay repentance faith and then like baptism what's going on with that well the the how of baptism answers the why Historically, there have been three different ways that baptism gets done, three different modes of how baptism is administered. Now, the point is to get baptized. The modes are not spelled out explicitly in Scripture. The point is just, if you have come to know Christ, get baptized. The modes are not explicitly spelled out. But let me just give you a brief word about three ways that people, historically in Christianity, have done baptism. There are three ways, historically. Immersion, pouring, and sprinkling. Immersion, pouring, and sprinkling. And all three of them are hinted at in this passage. Briefly, first of all, one mode of baptism, dipping or immersion, where the person is put down in the water and raised up out of the water. We see some clue for immersion here versus 24 and 32, it, t- it says over and over, God raised Jesus up. He was dead, but he raised him back to life. And so some believe that just as Jesus rose up from death, so those who are dipped down into the water and are raised up in baptism. So, immersion. The second mode of baptism that's been practiced, sprinkling. In the context of, of the Jewish sacrificial system in the Bible, the sprinkling of blood over and over. You could not get away from it. The sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice, that was what spiritually cleansed you from sin and removed your guilt. Okay, so sprinkling of blood, they all got it. That's how sin is cleansed and removed. Verse 38, Peter says, Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins and then later Peter writes about the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ so immersion sprinkling finally a third mode of baptism pouring verse 38 he says be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit so be baptized you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit well how do you receive the Holy Spirit He says it here, just a few verses back, verse 38. The Holy Spirit, he poured out. So it's reminiscent of other places, like Isaiah 44, 3, where God says, I will pour out my spirit on your descendants. So we've looked at this terrible injustice. We've looked at an unexpected gift. The Holy Spirit poured out. And finally, we see a generous and a joyful community, verses 41 through 47. All these people who, who hear this sermon from Peter, and they repent, they believe, and they're baptized, they don't just go home after that with these good feelings, and they just get back to life. They enter into the community. They enter the community of other baptized people. They join a congregation where, where Jesus is followed and where they'll be instructed. Now, we're not going to get into that, but what we see in this congregation of baptized people here look at what we see briefly in this congregation and I think it's what by God's grace we see and we will see in this congregation here you people of Emmanuel briefly four things in this community are brought out first of all there's gladness it's a community of gladness together verse 41 verse 46 it's a place of cheer it's a place of glad singing among one another. They do it together. Gladness offered up to God in the time of song, in the time of worship. And that's why we, that's why you, come every Sunday to worship the Lord together with gladness. There's gladness. Secondly, there's also need in this community. In this community, you also see need. Some people who are coming and are part of the community, they don't have enough. They can't pay the bills. They can't afford shoes. They lack opportunity. And so people around them are joyful. Maybe they're joyful, but people are also hurting. And the community shared with one another. Those who had more, it says, shared generously. Those who had more shared even sacrificially to those who had need. He's saying this, the poor did not feel excluded. The poor were embraced. Could this be a place where the poor are received and embraced? Where sufferers receive comfort? I think so. So there's gladness, there's need. Thirdly, we also see interpersonal connection. We see this community of people doing life together. They're not just attendees. You're not just attendees your friends, and more than friends, your family, brothers and sisters in this community, children of the living God. And so what we see in the text, they eat together. They visit one another. They open their lives to one another. They're bound to one another through thick and thin. Are you you dining with the people in this room over the course of the week? Are, Are you opening up your lives to each other, disclosing your troubles to one another, Are you calling each other during the week to check on a fellow struggler? I'd give you permission. Send a text to someone. Make a call to someone. Share a meal with someone. So there's interpersonal connection. Fourth, finally, what we see here is invitation. We also see that this is an inviting community. They love one another, but they're not insulated and and solely inward-facing They keep reaching out. They keep throwing open their arms. They constantly invite those who are outside to come in. Verse 41, thousands are brought to know Jesus. Verse 47, it continued, more and more were added to the church who were being saved. The people of Jerusalem were being invited and added. And so there were local people. And that's what we want to do. We want to connect to the local people, not of Jerusalem, but of Norfolk, of this neighborhood. Well, this is the the generous and the joyful community. How can we be this kind of generous community? We can do it because of the generosity of Jesus, because he gave his life for us. We have everything to give and nothing to lose. Could it be that the one who died for us is the one who lives and walks among us even this morning? May it be so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is your congregation and we are part of your greater body, the church. And we pray that you would come to us and that you would show yourself to us. And as we love one another, as we turn away from our sins and as we believe on you, that you are shepherd, you are king, you are Lord and master and our dear elder brother. We pray that you would lead us and we would hear your voice. Bless us now and send us out, and may the gospel seed as it's planted, bear fruit to your delight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.